Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today are Anoma Vandevia from Leiden University and Dr. Catherine Lowe from University College Maastricht. Their new edited volume, Public Health in Asia During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Global Health Governance, Migrant Labor, and International Health Crisis was published recently by Amsterdam University Press. It examines the impact of the past two years of pandemic on public health policies in several Asian countries as well as on their labor policies. So uh, welcome, Anoma and Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before we talk about the book, can you tell us about um, yourselves and your research? Um, what do you work on? Okay, I can start first. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Catherine No. I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I'm currently assistant professor at University College Maastricht at Maastricht University. I'm a political scientist by training, but I have conducted interdisciplinary research in international relations and global health with an Asian focus. In other words, my research looks into the interaction between states and international organizations in responding to global health problems, including antimicrobial resistant crisis and um, infectious disease outbreaks such as SARS, H. Uh, 5M1, uh, HIVAs, and of course, COVID-19. Thank you. That's very... Um, okay, I see where this uh, book is coming now, but Anoma, what about you? Yeah, I don't have uh, I don't have a thorough introduction like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, my name is uh, Anoma van der Veer. I am, uh, as you can probably sense, uh, tell from the way I pronounce my name, very Dutch. Uh, which also uh, explains why I'm affiliated to the Leiden Asia Center at uh, Leiden University. Um, And I'm actually a researcher there, and I have been for quite a few years, although I'm based in Japan right now. 
uh, for a variety of reasons we'll, we won't have to go into. But uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, I do research into public health, basically. And I've done uh, projects on public health in different uh, from different perspectives, uh, for example, disability studies, uh, but also digital health. Uh, and uh, this, this book is also a product of that particular um, field of research. Uh, and uh, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically it. That's my whole introduction. <laughs> oh, thank you. Welcome, welcome. So uh, this is a very timely book, obviously. Um, when we thought the pandemic was about to be over, it kind of started again. So uh, how did this, I guess, um, I always ask how um, our authors um, begin to work on their volumes. But so obviously that the pandemic was a big pushing force in the topics of this books. But how did you and the contributors decide to focus on issues of global health policies and migration in Asia? So um, let me take this one. Uh, yeah. So um, this book actually started um, out as as a discussion between between me and and my boss uh, and and our manager at the Leiden Asia Center. Uh, about how we were extremely frustrated with how Asia was represented in in, in European and American media. Um, as you might know, that there's uh, well, I think everyone in in fields that deal with Asia kind of have have to deal with these misrepresentations, these oversimplifications, uh, these, these uh, cultural generalizations, like uh, everyone in Japan uh, listens very well, and uh, everyone in China also listens very well. Uh, you know, there's no individuality. They're all very homogenous. Uh, and, and what happened over the course of the first few months of the pandemic is that you had these countries that were doing a lot better than European countries. So um, what you saw in reaction in European media and among European politicians, but also problematically amongst policymakers is that they pointed at Asia saying that, well, this is not how we can do it because they're different. These are different people. Um, And by doing that, they kind of ignored the whole public policy perspective, right? They didn't actually look at how these governments uh, formulated policies to deal with the pandemic. Rather than that, and this is we actually talk about this in the in, in the uh, in our introduction as well. Uh, and uh, it's uh, so because because you know I'm Dutch, I, I, I read a lot of Dutch policies, uh, and I we, we came we kind of came across this. Uh, and, and Catherine also works in the Netherlands, of course, so she, she probably knows this uh, all too well as well. Um, we came across this example of two policymakers uh, at the Ministry of Health uh, who were tasked with making an international comparison between uh, different countries to uh, explain how different governments tackled the pandemic uh, to inform Dutch policies. Well, um, this 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 was nothing more than just uh, cultural overgeneralizations uh, packed into uh, uh, a little little report that that uh, made 
everything worse than it should have been. And it was basically just one long um, explanation of why the Dutch government uh, did what it did. Instead of looking at actual, actually looking at countries and saying, well, they did it like this. Maybe we can take lessons here. We can learn something here. They basically said, well, they're doing this. But, you know, because South Korea is very feminine uh, and we are not, then uh, we can't do that because, you know, the South Koreans are feminine. Uh, and um, it's, it's, it's a very painful way of seeing Asia. Uh, and this is the frustration that we kind of dealt with over the course of uh writing the whole volume but i think this was actually how the whole book started and um for this reason also most of the authors uh in the book they are either based in the country they're studying or they are from the country they're studying or they are living and working there or they have a lot of experience with these countries right so we don't have any authors and we did this on purpose we don't have any authors uh, who just basically write about a country that they've been on vacation uh, with uh, for two weeks. You know, we have actual authors based in their locations or have a lot of, of years of experience uh, of working with the governments there. Uh, I think that that makes, uh, makes uh, the difference, especially when you read the book, because it's very accessible. It's very short chapters. Um, and uh, but this was this was the whole rationale of the book. Great. Catherine, would you like to add something? Um, as I said uh, before uh, our recording, I was a latecomer of the of the volume, but uh, I really loved the idea proposed by Anoma and his uh, manager. And that's why I jump into as an editor of the book. And yeah, I think this is like something I want to like that's fantastic. So uh, what's the structure of this book and what specific problems does um, each part address? Okay, I think I can take this question. Um, so this volume of the uh, consists of four main themes, which are health policy in Asia and the global community, the future of global health governance in Asia, domestic responses to COVID-19 in a globalized Asia, and lastly, uh, migrant workers and the global economy during uh, COVID-19. So part one uh, of the book assesses health policies in Asia and the interactions between the agencies at national, regional, and global levels in terms of infectious disease outbreaks. Part two of the book looks into the function of the WHO in coordinating disease responses in Asia so as to envision the role of the institution um, in global health governance in the future. Part three of the book uh, includes four chapters illustrating domestic responses to COVID-19 in Asia. These case studies explore the various factors that have contributed to or restricted um, an effective response to COVID-19 in these respective countries and the effects on the local population. The final session of the book uh, takes a closer look at the effects of COVID-19 on workers in different Asian countries, in particular non-regular workers and migrant workers. Um, the final uh, session 
examines the socioeconomic impacts of COVID-19 related measures in societies in Asia. So this is the overall structure of the book and also the problems that we try to address in each session. Thank you. That's very thorough. And it obviously covers um, a lot of very important topics under um, health and immigration. So in the beginning of the book, you mentioned this uh, dual approach in the volume. Um, So I guess before we talk about the actual problems, uh, I also want you to uh, have a chance to explain a bit of your method here. What is this dual approach thing? Yeah, so um, it's actually quite simple. Uh, we 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 were talking amongst the authors, amongst the contributors, uh, and amongst the editors, of course, about what are the most salient topics right now when it comes to the pandemic, because uh, everyone talks about you know the the small things. Are we? Um, just to give an example, most people were talking about the masking problems or the vaccinations or the. You know, it's it's the it's the very common themes that are very easily politicized, that in the end affect, um, well, how how things turn out. But what we wanted to talk about were the things that people actually don't really wanted to talk about, and I think um, those were uh, global health governance for one. So how is it how is it conducted uh, in unison, or how are people cooperating, or how are governments cooperating, or um, actually how they're not cooperating, which was most of the time the case, uh, through this this very large international, supranational institution, uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, and, and the other one was migrant labor, which is uh, very much attached to that uh, because, especially in Asia, um, migrant labor has become very important. Uh, We have different levels of economic development, so we have a lot of different countries sending migrants or receiving migrants, and this very much receives, uh, this very much affects how global health governance is perceived, right? Uh, For example, if you're in Indonesia, uh, you're sending a lot, you're sending out a lot of migrants, and then a pandemic hits, and then you get a lot of migrants back. Well, how do you how do you deal with that? You turn to the WHO because you know this is this uh, international organization that can that can maybe help you deal with this thing, or the International Labor Organization and help you with setting up rules. And then you find out that they don't actually they're not actually prepared to deal with this kind of stuff. Um, so when we when we talked about what do we want to tackle with this book, these were the big the two big themes that we uh, we wanted to talk about. That's why I'm also so happy that Catherine came on board because she knows so much about the WHO. It's just uh, it's it's a little ridiculous, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's amazing. I'm very happy she came on board, even though she said she's a latecomer. She was uh, extremely helpful in in getting this all together. Uh, but yeah, so these were the big two the two big themes that we wanted to tackle and that uh, we we kind of did with this book. So I'm I'm quite happy with the results. That's great. And we'll get to the um, WHO part later. Uh, But so since this pandemic mostly started in Asia, at first, then spread to other parts of the world, um, as you said in the beginning and in the book, Asia played a very important role in the discussions of health policies and um, entry bans or future preventions of um, other sorts of pandemics and so on. 
So in these case studies, what have you found about the representations of Asian countries, and what are some of the underlying problems in these、uh, representations?、Mm-hmm. Thank you for the question. I think I can start first, and Amelma can jump in later on.、Um, you correctly point out that Asia is a very interesting. Region to study, so to study for most global health scholars and researchers. If you consider the major infectious disease outbreaks in the twenty-first century, including SARS, H5N1, H7N9, and COVID, and these infectious diseases are originate and first reported in Asia,、uh, more precisely China. Since viruses do not respect borders,、um, through So during an infectious disease outbreak, it is crucial to let neighboring countries、uh, to access to key、uh, information about the disease, so that countries could respond to the outbreak or potential outbreak individually or and collectively in a timely manner.、Um, however. Information transparency and the presence of an independent media are quite lacking in non-democratic countries、uh, like China. So,、uh, countries in Asia、uh, still hold the memory during the SARS outbreak, in which some local Chinese officials attempted to cover up the initial outbreaks of SARS in 2002, causing the spread. Of the disease in six countries in the world within 24 hours. Therefore,、uh, during the initial outbreak of COVID-19, many countries in Asia immediately closed their border with China,、uh, despite the WHO advice against the measure. I would say there is a lack of trust and communication between countries in Asia. Noma, would you like to add something? Yeah. So、uh, if, I, if I can talk about that last part of your question. So what, what have I found about the representations、uh, of, of、uh, Asian countries?、Uh, I think that was your that was your question, right? And what the impact was on, on global health governance of that. But that's not necessarily one of the big topics of the book because we really wanted to talk about the countries themselves.、Um, but there we we do talk about it、uh, in the sense that、uh, we we talk about what the effects are for the global community. Right, so、uh, we have one of our first chapters is about、uh, how do we deal with this、uh, idea that the WHO, for example,、um, its reputation、uh, has has basically has kind of been eroded. It, it's declined, and one of the reasons for that, of course, was China's role in, in the WHO,、uh, which which Catherine can talk about. Let's、uh, talk about more、uh, a lot more. Uh, but we have a chapter, for example, that examines the actual case. You know how how effective or how cooperative has China been, or how, what what kind of what level of influence does China have in the WHO, which also you know is limited to an extent,、uh, although they you know they try. Like every every other country does, because Japan tries just as hard, but yeah, you know, they're just they're not as successful.、Um, but yeah, so、uh, I, I think I think. Um, because what Catherine said,、um, all these diseases, all these infectious diseases originate from Asia.、Um, that this is also the representation of Asia. That it's it's kind of a paradox, right? We have this idea that at one point there 
they're this 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 um, incompetent batch of people, which consists of one third of the world, uh, that continuously bring out all these infectious diseases that affect the rest of the world. Uh, and on the other hand, then we have all these cases that that they look, you know, especially in Europe, you look at Asia and then oh, but they're doing it quite well handling this, right? So it's a paradox between. Uh, this 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 incompetent batch of people and this very competent batch of people, uh, and I think um, this has very much affected how we conduct global health governance, because uh, especially in, in 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 the WHO we see that it's a, it's a it's cherry picking, right? You cherry pick the representations you kind of need to to argue your current position, uh, and because the WHO does this. Uh, you see the same thing happening in in national governments, uh, and I also think this is why Europe was very late in responding to uh, to the pandemic because they looked at Asia through the lens of they're very incompetent, they're not handling their they're not handling their things very well, and then it came off over to them, and then it all happened to them, and then they're like, oh well, we have to use a different lens uh, and maybe see if we can we can you know have our own approach, and then that didn't work, and then they changed lenses again, and then they said, well, but but because you know Asians are just very different, so they we can't do it like they do. It's 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 very it's very frustrating. It's very uh, as as a as personally, I find it makes me quite a, a, a irritated. As an academic, it makes me frustrated uh, because it ignores um, it. Basically, what happens is everyone except Asians ignore Asia. Um, that that's what it all comes down to. That's what it all boils down to, uh, and uh, that affects global health governance because you know Europe and the U.S are overly powerful in these big institutions like the WHO. They're, ver- they're, ver- they're overly powerful in, in, in decision-making uh, internationally when it comes to global health governance. And yeah, China and Japan, they have some weight, but they don't have enough weight to dispel this negative or positive or overly positive or overly negative representations. And I think, uh, I think that is very problematic. Um, I'll just leave it Absolutely. at that. I can rant about this for another hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's it's um, painfully accurate. But let's talk about the WHO for a bit because uh, quite several of the chapters cover this topic. So what is or what was, I guess, the role of WHO in this whole pandemic? What did they do? And what was the significance of the WHO for different countries and um, I guess if it had any impact on global health governance and um, health policies in these Asian countries, what kind of problems do you see in its impact? Mm-hmm. I can take that question. As Norman mentioned, I know a lot about WHO uh, in both good and bad way. Um, but uh, regarding to global health governance, then we need a governor, and the only governor in global health governance is World Health Organization, WHO, which is very um, interesting and also very important for WHO to, to, to do a good job in managing global health affairs. Um, and because of that, uh, WHO always receives all praises and, of course, criticisms in dealing with global health problems. 
because they are the only one who manage global health crisis uh, in the international level. And one of the main criticisms of the WHO is the declaration of public health emergency of international concern. Uh, in short, we call it fake. Uh, the WHO had had the responsibility to determine uh, whether an outbreak is a global public health emergency since 2005 uh, under the international health regulations. Uh, WHO has only done these five times before COVID-19 and, of course, uh, uh, monkeypox. But the amount of time it has taken for the WHO to declare a particular situation as a fake uh, has nevertheless became a focal point of criticism. For example, during uh, the 2009 H1N1 outbreak, it took the WHO 38 days to declare a fake uh, for H1N1. But it took uh, WHO 138 days, 100 days more, to declare Ebola as a fake. Um, so people are suspecting why it takes only 31, 38 days for H1N1, but 138 days for Ebola. It is because H1N1 affect U.S. more, and that's why, as Andoma mentioned, U.S. had a bigger role and bigger influence in WHO, then they can push WHO to do something as soon as possible. And because Ebola is only so-called only uh, in happening in, in West Africa, then that's make the U.S. and other advanced countries not really concerned about Ebola more than H1N1. Um, and this is the point of criticism of why WHO declares or does not declare a particular situation as a fake. Um, and critics have argued that WHO decision is based on uh, economic conditions of the affected countries. And some studies indicate that uh, the direct impact of infectious disease uh, on the US is a necessity condition for a global health emergency uh, announcement. Um, And in the case of COVID-19 outbreak, um, at the start of 2020, the WHO was blamed for serving the interest of the Chinese government, as Anoma also mentioned a bit before. And social media uh, also widely report the case that WHO has been highly or widely influenced by the Chinese official. And then they claim or they say WHO should change name from WHO to CHO, Chinese Health Organization. Um, yeah, um, so you can see how the social media also play a role in, uh, in, 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 in portraying WHO in a very negative way. And especially during uh, COVID, during a pandemic outbreak, uh, people are also afraid of the outbreak and, and this uncertainty also led WHO losing its legitimacy in global health governance. Um, so in general, I would say in the process, the legitimacy and trust of the WHO has gradually be eroded um, and states, countries tend to ignore WHO advices. Uh, for example, when, w- when WHO declared COVID-19 as a fake, uh, the WHO also 
uh, advised states to keep borders open on the basis of the international health regulations. However, almost every country ignored WHO advice, and many countries even closed their borders to all nations, uh, leading to an unprecedented uh, crisis for migrant workers in a number of Asian countries that we will talk about it in later on, and also in the book. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Yes, indeed. I personally am very familiar with that pain of the closed borders. Um, but uh, that, that's a story for another time. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, some, some of the countries in Asia um, have been used in Western media as positive or negative examples for handling the situation. So among the positive um, examples, countries like South Korea and Japan were kind of praised by Western media as um, being completely competent in handling the situation super well and containing the, um, the pandemic very well. But many of the effective policies from Southeast Asian countries were overlooked. Now, part four of your volume analyzes domestic responses from several Southeast Asian countries. What are the conclusions and implications from this part of the volume? Yeah, let me, uh, let me make a start on that. Uh, and hopefully Catherine can jump in wherever she she wants to. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a good question because um, I feel like, and this is this is something that you can probably quote me on, but uh, probably shouldn't. Um, I think I feel I feel like most of the world ignores South South East Asia uh, when it comes to basically anything. Uh, it's just not important enough for some reason. Uh, which is, of course, ridiculous, but um, because, like you said, uh, we have some examples of of um, countries that are, you know, according to the the logic of of European policymakers, wouldn't be able to handle a pandemic like this, um, and they did to an extent. Uh, although, of course, you know, it goes up, uh, up and down, up and down, up and down. And I, I kind of dislike the idea that uh, a country can do well or can do bad uh, over a pandemic because, you know, it stretches over a long period of time and saying it does this or that is just too black and white. Uh, sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't. Uh, and I think that is also one of the best things that you can learn from Southeast Asian countries is that there's this um, this flexibility and mobility in how policy should be constructed. It should be made according to the, uh, the situation you're in. Uh, and um, this is what a lot of these Southeast Asian governments did quite well. They 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 adjusted to the situation. Um, 
Although I do have to mention here that um, the way they adjusted, and I think this is also this what probably touches upon why Southeast Asia has been ignored so much, uh, is, is because the way they adjusted to the situation is not in line with how other countries might adjust to a situation. Like in Vietnam, for example, we see that um, the moment COVID-19 hit, um, their distrust for the Chinese government also hit. Right, uh, there's, there's this embedded uh, distrust uh, of of China in in Vietnamese amongst Vietnamese policymakers and amongst the the, the ruling party. And what happened was the moment that this became a thing, they they reacted quite quite fast, rather quickly. Also because they share a border with China and there's a lot of you know uh, intercountry. There's a lot of traffic between the two countries. But they reacted quite quickly. They they closed the borders uh, for one. They, uh, uh, which of course the WHO didn't recommend, but you know it still happened. Uh, and um, but and they reacted quickly to to infections, uh, and they started a full war against COVID nineteen. And I use the word word war explicitly because that is how they portrayed it in their PR, their per, in their in their uh, propaganda, basically. Uh, so there's a, there's a chapter in the book that talks about this, how, um, you know, all the resources that they, they, they had and they learned over the course of uh, the post-Vietnam era, uh, you know, the, the anti-America rhetoric and propaganda uh, was fully, fully uh, utilized in, in uh, the rhetoric against COVID-19. Uh, which of course you know also has its negative effects, and I think this is why it's not replicable uh, replicable in other countries, is because you know we had, for example, one case in which uh, a woman came back home and she had COVID nineteen, she was infected, and she was basically just publicly lambasted, uh, and uh, you know it, it's a surprise she wasn't killed. Uh, to the extent of that. So, you know, and on the other hand, you have a, uh, an English, uh, I think he was a pilot who got COVID-19, uh, you know, uh, ended up in the hospital. The Vietnamese doctor saved him and he became an example of how Vietnam is doing it better than the rest of the world, especially uh, the Americans and the Europeans. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not very, uh, you can't really imitate that kind of approach. Uh, but what is also interesting was, for example, in Malaysia, uh, where the COVID-19 pandemic hit um, right at a moment of political instability. So what, what happened was, of course, policymakers and, and you know, the political, uh, political uh, leaders, they weren't ready for attacking this entire problem because, you know, they were dealing with stabilizing their own country. Um, and um, surprisingly, you know, they they at one point did manage to kind of steer it into the right direction uh, despite this political instability because um, you, you had this entirely new challenge, the pandemic. So focus shifted to the pandemic and stability became kind of like, uh, well, we kind of have to be stable because we have to, we have to do this. We have to, we have to deal with this. Uh, so um, this flexibility and response is something I think we can also learn uh, a lot from, especially in countries that might uh, be a little more, um, how do you say this nicely, um, inflexible, <laughs> rigid uh, in, in, in how they think 
uh, about how things should be handled. Um, so yeah, uh, um, um, is that is that? I think that that would be a conclusion and implication of 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 how we can learn things from the domestic responses in Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was quite um, amazed by when I was reading the book. I was just um, well, I didn't know most of um, what you mentioned in the chapter is because. Well, um, media representation can certainly change how we view other countries' policies and the amount that was not reported by um, Western media or vice versa um, can completely change how we understand um, the ways that other countries deal with this pandemic. But moving on um, to the next parts of your book, um, economy and labor are the focus, uh, a very important focus of the book. And the lack of mobility during the past two years has greatly impacted the global economy. And I guess not just um, economy in in a lot of sense. um, I would love to say education um, as one of the persons influenced by this. But in terms of labor migration, what do the chapters in this part discuss? And uh, what difficulties are presented in this migration policies? What results have these um, policies about migration due to the country's um, economy or what results do you think they might lead to in the future? You want to take this one, Catherine, or should I? uh, You can take this one. I can take this one. I can take this one. I feel like I've been talking too much and my my mouth is dry now. (laughs) No, it's... uh, so um, let me let me recap real quick. So for for just my personal understanding, you just talked about the economy and labor, how this has affected uh, labor migration, what difficulties are presented in migration policies. Um, well, um, I think I think the biggest lesson that we've learned from this entire uh, book and from this project, but uh, not just that, just from the entire situation in Asia, is that. When something like this happens, the first people that are affected are those in precarious labor situations. Um, And those are migrant laborers most of the time. And migrant laborers, they come from countries that are not especially wealthy, don't have a very uh, strong infrastructure to support, um, you know, the health needs of these laborers especially when they suddenly come back in waves like they did in Indonesia, uh, you know, because Indonesia is a sending country, as, as one of our chapters talks about. Uh, they send out hundreds and thousands of, of, of laborers, uh, if not millions of laborers every year. Uh, and all of a sudden they, they come back. They don't have a job anymore, uh, but they do need health support. Uh, and then you have uh, a country like Indonesia looking at uh, the International Labor Organization and the, the, the World Health Organization for help. And uh, they find out that neither of these have any policies in place that are country specific. They're all very general. So they don't account for any of the local um, factors, or domestic factors that, that affect um, you know, the actual daily lived realities of the, these laborers. 
So I think that's that's one problem, and that's one of the. Uh, I think that is just the biggest lesson we can we can take from this entire pandemic when it comes to migrant laborers is that the ones that are most affected are usually the ones that shouldn't be affected the most because they're in the most precarious situation. Uh, and, and another chapter talks about Taiwan. Um, it's exactly the same thing. It's because the health infrastructure in Taiwan is not aimed at supporting migrant laborers. Um, they're not, they're, they don't, they didn't receive the same level of support as Taiwanese citizens did. Right. So what happened was that a lot of these laborers, they fled or they left their jobs or, you know, they were fired because, you know, during, during the pandemic, a lot of people were just fired because of they cost too much. Uh, and, and then they fled because, you know, they didn't want to be repa- repatriated because back home it might be even worse. Uh, so you have an entire community of people all of a sudden that are not covered by health. Uh, insurance, who don't have access to, to basic health needs, uh, who cannot get tested because, you know, once they go to a testing facility, they're rounded up and sent home. So they're not, uh, and even if they're not, they're scared that it might happen. Um, so you have you have these problems all of a sudden. How do you deal with, with a community like this that is scared of you as a government uh, while you still have to deal with them as a government? Right. And in Taiwan, we see these uh, uh, smaller projects popping up like uh, the COVID-19 taxi, uh, the Corona taxi, in which uh, laborers can anonymously, you know, go to a testing facility, get themselves tested. Uh, at one point, you know, they, they start improving the health infrastructure a bit to make it easier for people who are illegally in the country to still receive, uh, um, you know, certain certain health care uh, but you know these are these are ad hoc solutions. They're not structural solutions most of the time, uh, and I think that is when we talk about migrant labor in Asia. I think that is the biggest issue, is that none of these countries that we looked at were able to deal with migrant laborers because most of the time they're just viewed as second class citizens, uh, and in, in the countries they're in, and for the countries that are sending them. Uh, you know, getting them back in waves and it's just in masses, it's just a, an enormous economic burden that they don't know how to deal with. Uh, and I think if we, if we, you know, we talk about global health governance throughout this book, but I think one of the biggest challenges that we have when it comes to global health governance, especially in this time, day and age in which laborers go all over the world, mobility has increased tremendously, is looking at how can we ensure and assure that this doesn't happen again um, when it comes to these laborers, right? Because uh, there's going to be another pandemic. We can be very sure. That we can be very sure that there's. We already have monkeypox, right? And now that uh, now that the world's media has already, you know, experienced this COVID nineteen thing, every new virus is going to get the same level of attention, or or uh, maybe a little less. But you know, for at least the next few years. We are going to have more of these scares and governments are going to have to respond to these scares. And the way they've responded over the course of the pandemic has not always been the most ideal way because it has um, victimized the most uh, you know, vulnerable peoples. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the things we also want to say with this book. Catherine, any um, additional comments? Um yeah, I'm thinking about when I when I uh, heard what Abdomer um, 
was saying, I was thinking about uh, countries in, I mean, China. Uh, I heard of like news saying that um, in the southern top of China, there is a big African community because these African, they come, they stay in China for small businesses. And during the COVID, like the initial outbreak of COVID, um, many of these uh, uh, African residents, they were simply kicked out by Chinese uh, landlord. Uh, and then they need to sleep underneath footbridges and on the uh, uh, passing, passenger path just because uh, the, those Chinese thought these, are, uh, these people are prone to uh, having COVID. So you can also see the like the double stigma attached to these uh, migrant workers that make them even more vulnerable. Although, like for China, they always praise they have really good relations with African people. But then uh, when emergency comes, uh, when pandemic comes, then they suddenly differentiate we, us, and then they just push these people out of the streets. And the local government had nothing they can do about it because these are the decisions made by the these private landlords. I'm really glad your volume is covering this issue, though, because um, so as a Japanologist, of course, I, I most of the um, information I paid attention to from the beginning of the pandemic was about the labor uh, situation in Japan, and I noticed that in most of the media, um, in the reports within the um, newspapers. Um, uh, most of them were about how um, after these migrant labor left Japan or after they couldn't um, keep producing uh, in the industry, Japan was now losing uh, or had to stop or had to pause their uh, factory lines for products like cameras and cars and in america actually um, a lot of people were complaining about the shortage of uh, car parts or computer parts uh, from apple factory and but nobody really paid uh, much attention to the people who had to quit their job or were forced to quit their job or to leave the country and as you your book pointed out they had nowhere to go um they had no place to stay. They had no health coverage in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, I just, I, I, I thought it was really great that um, your chapter is covering this. Yeah. So we actually also have a chapter that talks a little bit more about, uh, for example, the domestic situation in Japan. Uh, and um, I think you make a very good point, uh, especially when it comes to migrant laborers. They're the most vulnerable. But I think one of the things that has also been overlooked uh, overall in, in over the course of the pandemic is just vulnerable workers in general. Um, and what we see, for example, in Japan, uh, and, and um, Saudi uh, talks about this in her chapter on, on uh, the form of capitalism and neoliberalization in, in Japanese policymaking in this book as well. She looks at how in Japan uh, there's more and more precarious labor, right? There's more part-timers, there's more people that work in, in, uh, in short-term jobs, day laborers, and these are people that are often not covered by health insurance. Uh, and these are, in Japan, for example, most often women, 
you know, of the 970,000 people that were dismissed in the first month uh, of the pandemic in Japan, uh, I think over 700,000 or something uh, were women. The majority were women. Uh, and so uh, what we talk about, and I think this is also what we wanted to talk about in this book, is that uh, I think Asia is kind of the migrant labor of, of, of the world when it comes to international public policy making and global health policy is because it's so overlooked uh, and especially Southeast Asian countries, um, they're just treated as this, this uh, uh, rhetorical object, right? It's, they're, not, they're non-existent until they're relevant to the discussion. Uh, and I think that's very problematic. Uh, and over the course of the pandemic, I think we, we, we see this uh, a lot is that these these are the people that are forgotten the easiest because you know we talk about our cameras we don't talk about the people who make our cameras we car we talk about our cars we don't talk about the people who make our cars uh, it's it's very easy to gloss over this because you're not affected by it because the ones that are not affected by it basically are in, you know the rich people so it's but you know that's that's a whole different story we can focus on another time maybe for the next book right Catherine yes. <laughs> Of course. Indeed. Now, for some countries, the pandemic might seem to be over, but in many other, it's still very much present. Um, so cases are rising in Japan and China is seeing new rounds of citywide quarantines. Through the case studies of this volume, how do you think... Um, the public health policies should improve in the future. I know you've proposed a lot of um, potential lessons to be learned, but if you were to, um, if you were allowed to, to choose one, which ones would be the most important for you? Okay, thank you for a question. I can start first. I think you're hinting at, I mean, your question hinting at um, the different approach. There are two main approaches uh, using by countries around the world. One is living with COVID uh, and the other one is uh, zero COVID strategy. And uh, based on our understanding, uh, most countries except China, uh, maybe a bit of uh, Taiwan, they are still sticking to a zero COVID strategy while the rest of the world is living with COVID. Um, and for the Chinese uh, zero COVID strategy, I would say um, the Western uh, observer um, has viewed that zero COVID strategy employed by China as a very draconian but effective measure to maintain the low infection rate, um, considering the massive size of the country. Um, that zero COVID strategy, why China insists on it? Because that strategy, uh, apparently, apparent success uh, has been a source of pride for the Chinese people. And the country's leaderships has claimed um, the Chinese mobilization response to COVID demonstrate the government superior government capability. Um, like they can do better than the Western model, which is living with COVID. So this is the source of the legitimacy for the Chinese, uh, for the CCP. And that's why uh, the CCP, of course, they want to stick with it. And unfortunately, our book could not cover uh, the Shanghai cases because our book uh, uh, finished before the arrival of the Omicron variant. Um, 
so as the as the world know, uh, Shanghai has the three months lockdown, which is very unimaginable because uh, as a as a metropolitan uh, financial hub of China, how come Chinese government can do such thing? But they did it uh, extensively, and actually the causes of a lockdown is very expensive. Um, sources uh, indicate that the Shanghai lockdown reduced national real GDP by 4%. And in fact, during the Shanghai lockdown, not only in Shanghai, but simultaneously, uh, over 343 million people outside Shanghai, they were also under undergone some form of lockdown. But of course, the media only focused on the, the case in Shanghai, but ignore the Actually, there are so many cities in China. They are still, they, they are also having these kind of semi-lockdown or total lockdown, whatever they name, name it. Um, so although this zero COVID strategy could be a successful strategy for whatever variant we might encounter in the future, but China, of course, its economy will suffer from the effects of a long COVID. For example, uh, the recent data um, shows that China only had a 0.4% GDP growth in the second quarter of 2022. So I think one uh, lesson we should learn is how to balance uh, the economic impact and also the social impact and the health impact of uh, of a country when we implement such uh, drastic, maybe draconian measures. And the second lesson I'm thinking of is, uh, like we talk about the viruses keep evolving from like the regional, uh, sorry, from the original one to we have beta, delta, and then Omicron. So the virus keep evolving uh, I think so as our policy, our policy should change. Uh, we can't stick with the same policy and use the same policy for a different variant. If the virus can be that smart, I think we should be smarter than the virus. I completely agree. Anama, what do you think? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. You got it's, it's that you can't see my face, maybe though. But it's, uh, yeah, no, um, <laughs> I I could not agree more with that. Yeah, we need we need to be more flexible. I think that is, um, yeah, Catherine said it better than I ever could. Uh, that is an excellent lesson to take from all of this. And I think I think as an extension from that of that of that particular thought, um, I think that we need to reframe and restructure and and revolutionize how we look at global health governance. Uh, and we need to really, really uh, rethink how we, um, uh, how we govern the WHO. I think that is an important part of this. So how we look at the World Health Organization. Because for now, it's just, you know, they have these countries' offices. They have specific, uh, specific country plans. and, and they, uh, But for some reason, it's just still not, uh, flexible enough to actually um, balance this this international need to the domestic needs, and there's just too little of both 
um, and it just doesn't work. So uh, when it comes to this flexibility of, of, of policy that Catherine mentions, I think this is also applicable for um, for the WHO, not just for national governments. I think it should be uh, uh, much more wide than than uh, just just you know local governments, national governments should be everyone. Everyone should be thinking about this, uh, and maybe not even governments, also companies. You know how they deal with this, and and other stakeholders and NGOs and and uh, socially relevant um, you know organizations. So yes. I could not agree more with Katrin when it comes to flexibility in policy making. Yes. <laughs> well said. Uh, well, thank you for your time today. It was um, it was really great hearing your um, thoughts and analyses of the situation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to find out find out more about how post-COVID public policies in Asia are um, impacting global economy and labor, make sure to check out this new book, Public Health in Asia During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Global Health Governance, Migrant Labor, and International Health Crises by Anoma Vandevia and Dr. Catherine Lowe. This is an open uh, access book, which means anyone can access it for free, I think, um, online. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.